Welcome to Macro Peace Theater. I'm your host, Alistair Cook. No, this is Emil Kalinowski, and I can't help myself having fun as I introduce these wonderful stories to you. And we have a real special treat today. It is by Roger Starr from April 1976. Yes, A Kind Word About Money is the magazine article that you will find in Harper's Magazine in April 1976. Who is Roger Starr? Well, stick around for the outro and I will tell you a little bit about him. But in this delightful short piece, Starr explains to us that yes, money has a bad name, but it does good things too. It helps us determine price in a world of constraints. That's very important. And yes, value has a place, but so does price. I hope you enjoy it. One wonders, after all, how money got so many bad names. It has been called the quintessential capitalistic device for the enslavement of man. It is fickle, false, anti-spiritual, ungodly. It travels from hand to hand as a frail woman travels from man to man. Dollars poison diplomacy. Money clouds a true perception of value, which men insist on confusing with monetary price. In its purest form, as gold, it leads to desperate fallings out between conspirators, to fevered and futile quests ending in disaster in the Sierra Madre, in the tombs of South America, amidst the fractured ribs of ancient ships sunk in the depths of the sea. It has destroyed civilizations, despoiled cultures, cheapened and debased artistic efforts. Most dramatically, of course, it is itself utterly useless. One can starve to death surrounded by it and perish of unrequited love in the midst of it. Its possessors in every age and every culture have a most difficult time in living the virtuous life in this world and are considered unlikely to gain entrance into the next. When people condemn money with such vehemence, they are, of course, condemning the greed that money symbolizes. This ethical coloring probably lies behind the scorn for money, yet it does not comprise the whole of it. The very abstractness of money fans the moralist's hatred for it. Its apparent uselessness makes it symbolic not merely of greed, but of waste. But before labeling the accumulation of money a vice, one must distinguish between two views of the economic world which men inhabit. The first, characteristically an American view, sees the earth as holding plenty for all. In its most vulgar form, this theory depicts economic reality as a monster buffet table groaning with pate and grape awaiting the arrival of the entire population with a few household pets and sacred cows in tow. In such a world without shortages, where every demand would be capable of instant satisfaction, money would indeed be superfluous, and any accumulation of it would be a sin. The money grubber demonstrates a lack of faith in the very goodness of the earth. His accumulation constitutes a frivolous invasion of the shares of others, converting what is every man's in common into a set of private monopolies. 
but in the more sophisticated versions of the theory of plenty, the tendency of appetites to grow with eating and laziness to grow with satiety must be taken into account. It is possible to accept as fact the fullness of the earth and still believe that men can spoil it if they are not driven to exploit its potentialities and forced by some restraining mechanism to make choices between what they might use to slake their appetites. Money serves both these purposes. Accumulating money enables men to exploit the earth's potential riches without stopping every day to pick the grapes or make the pate they will need to eat. Exchange becomes possible, and through the medium of exchange, the earth can be persuaded to yield up her wealth. Thus, even in the peaceable kingdom, it is not the accumulation of money which is vicious, but overconsumption. To those who tend to hold an opposite view of the world, the Neo-Malthusian view, there will never be enough. It is in the very nature of things that men will recklessly exploit finite resources by multiplying their numbers and their appetites infinitely. They are not concerned that some may have greater shares than others because if it is in the nature of things that there will not be enough for all, the very survival of this species dictates that some must have more than others. In the view of the Neo-Malthusians, the accumulation of money is dangerous because it threatens the over-exploitation of natural reserves and leads some men, the most powerful men, to evade the necessity of making choices. This characteristic distinguishes the very rich from all the rest of us, immune from having to give up one apparent good in order to attain another. They do not understand the more or less painful weighing of alternatives, which constitutes daily business for the rest of us and permeates our view of the seriousness of life itself, since we know that choices are not usually refundable. The very poor are also immune from the need to make choices. They lack the monetary means with which to choose. It is in this respect that the pangs of poverty are painful in relation to the wealth of the surrounding society. The poor man in American society is dehumanized, not because his actual standard of living is below the level at which human life is possible. Clearly, hundreds of millions of people survive on standards far lower. He is dehumanized because his relative poverty deprives him of the human responsibility of choice. Yet, faced with even the simplest choice, most of us experience some difficulty in controlling our use of money. Spending near money in the form of charge accounts and credit cards is far too easy. Because the dollar bills do not leave my pocket at the time I purchase the goods or a service by signing my name, I tend to evade the effort of choosing and, in the end, buy more than I should. Friedrich von Hayek tells us that money works precisely because it is imperfect and that there are alternative value systems in which it can be evaluated and, if one wishes, discounted. If I am to be paid for my services in a quantity which is less than what I think I am worth, 
I am, happily, able to remind myself that money measures only my price, not my value. I can remind myself of all the other value systems, character, charm, beauty, intelligence, which money is patently unable to measure, and in which, of course, I excel, though secretly. Money works less well in determining possession of anything which is very rare or unique. Some years ago, I heard a local community leader demand of the New York City Board of Estimate the construction of a public housing project for low-income families on Central Park West, a high-rent area. Why can't poor people live in Central Park West like everybody else, he asked. Clearly, everybody else does not live on Central Park West, a two-and-a-half-mile stretch of avenue built up on only one side, which at the maximum conceivable density of habitation could not accommodate so much as 1% of the population of New York City. The speaker was, of course, saying, in a roundabout fashion, that poor people aren't paid enough money to exercise a choice in favor of living in highly desirable areas, and because our culture finds something inherently baneful about exclusion from a swath of territory, this geographical exclusion seems a particularly dramatic way to attack the monetary incapacity of the poor. On closer examination, the analogy itself should be stood on its head. To urge that the land on Central Park West should be distributed without reference to prices to imply that some other basis for the distribution be established. Presto, we are in a situation where not merely the economically poor, but those deficient in patriotism, loyalty, civility, or rapaciousness, or whatever criterion for Central Park West occupancy would be adopted, will be able to claim that they too should be able to live on Central Park West like everybody else. A unique work of art presents a similar problem. How can its monetary value be determined? Rembrandt's painting, Aristotle Contemplating the Bust of Homer, was described as priceless when the Metropolitan Museum bought it for $2.3 While no painter in the world could produce an equivalent painting for any amount of money that might be offered him, and so therefore no price for such a painting could be established, it nevertheless had a price. The price was simply that specific sum of money with which the trustees of the museum were willing to part in order to have the right to hang the picture on their walls, and the previous owners were willing to accept in return for stripping the painting free from their walls. Two parties are necessary to establish the price of anything. This gives price its social importance. Those non-cynics, in Oscar Wilde's formulation, who insist on the superiority of value over price do indeed have an important place in the world. Nevertheless, far more social damage may be done by those who do not know the price of something than by those who do not know its value. To insist on the achievement of a social value without recognizing the costs that must be incurred is to put other social values at risk. To say, as nearly everybody does, that human life is priceless 
is to assert a dangerous social proposition. Surely each life is priceless in the sense that the Rembrandt was priceless. Its equivalent cannot be produced. It is unique. However, the amount of resources that should be dedicated to keeping any single life in being imposes a hidden choice which affects at least the availability of resources to keep other lives in being. Well, that was delightful, wasn't it, ladies and gentlemen? I really enjoyed that. Roger Starr, who was he? I would say, first of all, he was a New Yorker. What did he do? Well, he was an intelligence officer during World War II. He died about 20 years ago. In fact, it was 20 years ago. He was born in 1918, lived through 2001. Intelligence officer in World War II, businessman, but primarily a New Yorker. Why? Well, he was a New York City housing administrator and then later became an editorial writer for the New York Times. And in this piece, A Kind Word About Money, which was published in Harper's Magazine, April 1976, he defends money, which sometimes needs defense, doesn't it? A little while ago, I read a piece by Marx in which he, he's, ah, he damned it. He damned money as a tool, as an object, a force that inverts truth. So here we have the opposite point of view. Let me read a delightful little piece by Mr. Starr to end the show. It's about the future and, of course, his beloved New York City. And it's about the subway. Back then, everyone except beer barons with bulletproof packards went by subway. Poets slept in them, carefully nurtured children took their first independent voyages on the subway to look at the dinosaurs in the Museum of Natural History. If lucky, they took over the front window of the first car and peered ahead at stations suspended in the darkness while the tracks unrolled like the future itself. <laughs>